can find 1 Samuel 18 and 19. We did read from Psalm 59. Psalm 59, as uh, was indicated, was penned during the time that Saul sent spies to watch uh, David's house, which uh, occurs in these chapters that we're going to be looking at this morning. And that's why we read that today, and we'll be referring back to that momentarily. Just one quick highlight I want to note, if you didn't, uh, uh, weren't paying attention or hadn't come in yet, uh, on Wednesday nights, uh, FBC Wednesday night, 645 to 745 right here in the Worship Center. Uh, last week was our first time having it. It was fantastic. A great time of prayer and worship and the Word, and uh, I don't want any of you to miss out on it. So if you've got an hour to spare, um, you should come out. If you don't have an hour to spare, I don't care. Come out anyway. It's just how that's going to be. I mean, I do care. I don't want to seem uncaring. I am uncaring. I just don't want to seem that way. Um, I'm, I'm mostly kidding. A quick question uh, before we jump into 1 Samuel 18 and 19. A child walks into a room, and they want to play with a toy. What toy is it? What toy is it? Whatever toy their sibling is playing with, Right? I mean, 100% of the time, I could tell you exactly what toy uh, the child wants to play with. It's whatever toy the other child is playing with. Uh, It could be shards of glass. It could be a broken glass in their hands causing pain. I want to play with that. Uh, The the children are really no different than us. What we want is whatever someone else has. Uh, Jealousy and envy is something we don't have to teach. You notice you never had to teach your children to be envious, did you? You sit down at dinner one time, okay, there's something we've got to cover, it's what we do, got to show you how to be envious. You, what would your kids say if you said that to them? They'd, I already know how to do that. I came hardwired with envy and jealousy. And this morning, uh, as we work through the story of God doing His work in the life of Israel through His King David, we're going to discover extreme envy and jealousy is occurring. Because now for Saul, there's a challenger to his throne. King Saul is on his throne in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. He hasn't been deposed. Uh, He still is ruling, but David has been anointed king. And David, as we uh, learned last week, has killed the giant Goliath. And uh, Saul is going to discover quite quickly he has a challenger to his throne, and Saul is going to be filled with jealousy. It says here in 1 Samuel 18, if you'll look with me, all the men were returning home. This is down in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18. This was after David had killed the Philistine. The women came out from all the towns to meet King Saul, and they were singing and they were dancing because they had had a great victory. And so all the women were coming out and doing what they customarily would do after a great victory is celebrate this great victory with singing and dancing, and they came up with this tune. Saul has slain his thousands, this is verse 7, and David his tens of thousands. Saul has slain his thousands, but David ten times as many. Read with me what happens in verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. And if you're like me, you would have said, he only killed one guy. Their math is all messed up. But me, they're only crediting with thousands. What, 
What more could he get besides the kingdom now? And from this time on, listen, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. As we look at this first section here of 1 Samuel 18, I want us to keep in mind something. I want to go through this. Saul's jealousy. And we have something important to pay attention to when we look at King Saul and King Saul's jealousy. He, he was ascribed with a thousands and thousands of slain. Uh, King Saul was celebrated by the women. The women came out. In fact, uh, one commentator points out Saul is listed first in the song. It's hard to know exactly what the song meant, but there's half a chance that the song was not intended to make Saul look bad. It was merely saying Saul and David both went out and had an awesome victory. But with his jealousy and his envy, he could not see the congratulations that he was being given. All he could see was they liked David more. Now, nobody else was celebrated. Nobody else was acclaimed. None of the other men, Abner was not celebrated. None of the brothers of David were celebrated. None of the other troops, just Saul and, and David. David uh, was ascribed maybe with the greater victory because he's the one who killed Goliath, wasn't he? But Saul couldn't receive the congratulations. His jealousy was so in, inflamed. His ears were red with anger and envy that he could only see that they loved David more. He couldn't pay attention to the fact that if he had a general or a military warrior like David, his own kingdom was benefited, wasn't it? What's the old saying they say on the coast? When the tide comes in, what? All the, all the boats rise. All the, everybody does better when the tide comes in. All the boats rise when the tides come in. And, and King Saul should have had this perspective. Listen, I've got a great warrior. If he wins mighty victories... So what if I'm not the one who has the victory? Things get better for all of us. But Saul didn't merely want victory. He wanted the victory to be his and not David's. So from then on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, as you know, if you've been paying attention to King Saul, he had this evil spirit that was bothering him. It would come on him, and it would make him paranoid and depressed. And you would say, well, how is that different from, than normal for Saul? We're not sure. We just think it makes, made it worse, perhaps. And so David was playing his harp for King Saul because we learned earlier in 1 Samuel that when David would play this harp, that the evil spirit would deliver Saul, or, or I should say would, would flee from Saul. So this is what we find out in verse 10. David was playing his harp as he usually did, and Saul had a spear in his hand. Stop there. If I'm playing a harp and somebody has a spear in their hand, I'm not sure if they like what I'm playing. Well, you don't like Stairway to Heaven, King Saul? Saul had a spear in his hand, and David is playing, and Saul hurls the spear at David. There's probably nobody else in the room. It's probably just Saul and just David. And Saul would have plausible deniability of later on, what, did you throw the spear at David? No, I just threw it, and he got in the way. He said to himself, I will pin David to the wall. David eluded him, how many times? Twice. That means Saul threw the spear at him, and David didn't simply leave. He continued playing the harp. Saul had time to go and retrieve his spear, reload, so to speak, throw it again. But David was able to elude him. Saul wanted David dead. 
He tried to kill him with his own spear, and when that wouldn't work, he decided to send him out on military missions, hoping he would die. So he, he assigned David a thousand men, and he said, go and attack the Philistines, go and attack the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Amalekites, and, and I want you to have victory over all of these people. And in the back of his mind, he's saying, I hope he dies. I hope he goes out with his thousand men, and I hear word back that they failed. Saul was afraid of David because he knew the Lord was with him. And every time David went out with his men, uh, he had a great victory. He kept winning and winning and winning. And so Saul doesn't know what to do. I can't kill him with my spear. I can't kill him by sending him out on military missions. I know what I'll do. I'll give him my daughter. And I don't know what Saul thought of his daughter. But he was hoping to entice David. And the Bible says Saul was hoping to ensnare David with his daughter. And so he offered his oldest daughter to David. David says this in verse 18, if you want to look with me. David says, who am I and what is my family? Who is my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So he refused it. He said, I won't do it. I won't marry your daughter. And his daughter was given to someone else. Saul finds out later that his other daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And Saul sent word, instead of going directly to David, he sent word through his servants. He said, hey, let David know through back channels and whisperings in corridors that Michael's in love with him, and I really want him to marry her. And David still wouldn't do it. And so Saul uh, made known to his servants, hey, let him know that I've, I've proposed to anyone who goes to the Philistines and kills a hundred Philistines and brings me back 100 Philistine foreskins. This is one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible. Let's just say that right up front. And there's a reason for it, because the Philistines were viewed by the Israelites as uncircumcised, and so they were saying, the circumcised Jewish people of God are set apart for God, and the Philistines are not. It's a way of saying that God's people will have victory of those who are not God's people. But nonetheless, it's very strange. David goes out and does not bring back 100 Philistine foreskins. He brings back 200. And in, in a way, says, I will marry your daughter because I have done the work required. And Saul is disappointed that David's not dead. That was the whole point. It was not that David would now be married to his daughter. The whole point was David would go out and do this thing and die. And he didn't. Saul tries to kill David with his own spear. Saul tries to kill David by sending him out on military missions. Saul tries to entice David into risky military missions against the Philistines by putting up a bride price, and none of these things can stop David, and jealousy is consuming Saul. He wanted his kingdom, and he wanted the glory of the kingdom, and he wanted the glory of God in his kingdom, and he was filled with, all the, with, with envy and jealousy and desire because David seemed to have all of these things, didn't he? And he wasn't even king, but he was worried that he was a challenger to his throne. Now, Saul had ruined his spiritual life by rejecting the Lord's work in his own life, but jealousy here derails him to a degree that could not have been predicted, I think. And I want to make a couple of notes about jealousy generally before we move on with the rest of the story here. 
You know, jealousy, when, we're, when we have envy, when we have jealousy towards someone else or something else, we make some assumptions. And I want to give you these assumptions that we make. Are you ready? Jealousy assumes I know what I want. Jealousy makes an assumption that I know what I want. So let me ask you, do you know what you want? Of course I do. I know what I want. I'm, I, am, I am me. Why would I not know what I want? Well, let me just point something out. Have you ever gone to a restaurant? Yes, okay. I'll take your silence to mean yes, I've gone to a restaurant. Have you ever ordered something and realized you didn't want it? When that, Oh, man, that, that sounds really good. That's going to be awesome. They bring it out and they go, huh, I don't want that. I thought you knew what you wanted. Uh, this happens all the time. What do we call it when we buy something and then we discover we didn't really want it? It's called buyer's remorse. I mean, we have a name for it. Buyer's remorse is merely me admitting, I don't have a clue what I want. Jealousy assumes unchallenged, without question, that I know precisely what I want. The fact is, I don't have a clue what I actually want. And so I I seek and I strive and I get this and I grab that and I go for this, hoping that's what I actually want, and I'm always disappointed, right? Well, jealousy makes the assumption that I actually know what I want. And it doesn't challenge that assumption. It says, you know what I want? Yeah, you're right. You want that. But the fact is, we don't have a clue what we want. So number one assumption that jealousy makes. When I am experiencing jealousy, I am not challenging the notion that I know what I want. And the fact is, most of us don't know what we want. Second assumption we make when we experience or act on jealousy is this, is I know what is best. If I have that, I'll be happy, and I know what's best for me. If I have that, my spouse will be happy, my children will be happy, my boss will be happy. Jealousy assumes that I know what is best for me. Using the restaurant illustration again, maybe it's because I skipped breakfast this morning. We decided, well, Friday or Saturday night, I can't remember which night. It was Saturday night. We decided... um, to go to Texas Roadhouse, and they don't pay for me to, to mention that. I only mention that because their portions are large. If you've eaten there, you've known uh, their portions are large. And I have kind of a rule. Um, I don't leave any food on my plate. <laughs> if they bring it out, I mean, I should eat it. It'd be rude not to. I don't want the chef to think I didn't like it. Um, chicken fried steak and the potatoes, and they said they could bring out some steamed vegetables. I said, well, no, that'll take up room for gravy. Um, (laughs) So you can keep the steamed vegetables. Um, But I know what's best. What's best for me is to eat an entire plate of uh, chicken fried steak and mashed potatoes. Until what? Until I eat an entire plate of chicken fried steak and mashed potatoes, and then regret that decision immediately. And it's, it's a silly thing to think about. This happens again. This happens all the time. I know what's best. I know what the best thing for me. And immediately upon doing it or obtaining it, I say, I, did, I, I didn't know what was best. Jealousy in my life assumes I know what's best. Jealousy assumes I know what the right thing is. Jealousy assumes I have the ability to discern what right and wrong is, to discern what's best and not best or evil. Jealousy makes assumptions about my ability to know what is good as compared with not as good. 
And it doesn't challenge these notions besides the fact that most of our life affirms that we have no idea what the best thing is. I mean, we're, it's really a guessing game to, to a large extent. But when we experience jealousy, we, we, we assume and don't challenge our own thinking that I know what's best. Third assumption jealousy makes. I know what I want. I know what is best. And third thing is I deserve what I want. The third assumption, and generally unchallenged, is that's what I want. Of course, I know what I want. And, and secondly, not only do I know what I want, but I know what's best because I am me. How could I not know what's best? Thirdly, is I deserve what I want. It's unfair that I don't have that which I desire. The, the fact that I don't have what I desire is a clear indication that something is wrong in the world around me, and jealousy does not challenge this notion that I deserve what I want. There might be a reason why you don't deserve that which you desire, but jealousy in the midst of that jealous rage that je where our ears turn red and our heart seizes within us with desire, I don't challenge that notion. No, I deserve that. I work hard, I've put in my time, I've paid my dues, or what's the other one we like? They certainly don't deserve it. Usually that's a form of some kind of spiritual prayer. Lord, why have you given that so-and-so the truck I wanted? He doesn't read his Bible nearly as much as I do. I know it sounds ridiculous, but... I mean, try and convince me you've never prayed that prayer. I mean, really, right? It's not so much that I, I, I deserve something, but if that guy deserves it, then certainly I do, Lord. Jealousy does not challenge in our own mind this thinking that we deserve that which our heart desires. I think jealousy is worse, worse if you believe in God. And let me explain this to you. I know what I want. I know what is best, I know that I deserve what I want, and obviously I don't have it, otherwise I wouldn't be having this conversation in my own mind. So that, the fact is, if God is God, there's one of two problems, I'm not sure which it is. Either He cannot afford what I want, which means He's not God, or He doesn't care. So I know what I want, I know what is best, I haven't challenged any of these notions in my own mind, but because I don't have what I want and I believe in God, therefore God either can't afford it or God doesn't care about me. And now all of a sudden I don't like God that much. See what jealousy does? Does he really want what's best? Obviously not. I know what's best and he hasn't given me what clearly is best. So therefore God must not care. Can God really provide? He must not be able to because He has not provided that which I need. Can He provide? Does He really care? Or maybe He's just arbitrarily rolling dice in heaven, giving out His good gifts to the whatever name comes up on the dice. That's why that, that so-and-so got the truck I wanted, right? That must be it. God's a compulsive gambler then. It sounds crazy, but tell me, this is how we think, isn't it? This is how Saul was thinking. This is precisely what was driving his mind to try and kill David. He knew what was best, he knew what he wanted, and he, he couldn't figure out why God wasn't on his team on this. And this is how jealousy works. 
Jealousies, maybe, I could make an argument that jealousy is the oldest sin, Isaiah 14. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. You can listen with me as I read it. Isaiah 14, verse 12. I believe this is a description of Satan. This is what it says. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And there it is. I know what I want. I know what's best. It irritates me that God isn't on the same page with me. So what is jealousy really? What is the root of jealousy really? I want to be like the Most High. Satan was the first one to do it. He introduced Adam and Eve to that sin, and we have picked up on it pretty easily, haven't we? And this is the root of jealousy is always going to be, I could do God's job better if you would give me half a chance. What we're going to normally do in the moment of that tension where we have to confront what our jealousy really is, it's not just, I, I want some nicer stuff. It really is a satanic ruse to unseat God's throne. So what we do to sort of comfort our mind with that is say, well, thankfully, I'm not like one of the bad jealous people. I'm just sort of jealous. So again, let's go to the Scripture and have it confront our notions. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? First, let's stop right there. What causes fights and quarrels among you? If we're going to really get out of this Scripture, what we need to get out of it, we have to uh, ask this question. In your life, either in the church or your home or work, are you experiencing fights or quarrels? I love how all the men suddenly froze. You're sitting by, no, no, absolutely not. Happy as a clam. All right. All of us experience fight and quarrels. In the church, we don't, things aren't the way we want them. At our home, things aren't the way we want them. At work, things aren't the way we want them. And we experience fights and we experience quarrels. James particularly is writing to the church, fights and quarrels within the body of believers. And he says, I'll tell you what causes fights and quarrels. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet. He basically accuses this church or challenges this church that they have the same problem that King Saul had. Jealousy that leads to murder. And that's what's causing these fights and these quarrels. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive it because you ask with the wrong motives. He softens it up a little here in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. This is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I read that just to point this out. He's talking about jealousy, and who does he, who does he reference? 
The devil. He says, listen, this is coming from your own heart. Your own soul is envious of the people around you, envious of the things you want, and this is coming from the devil. He is the father of this. But resist him. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Grieve, mourn, wail, repent. Realize that this jealousy will destroy your soul. It will destroy your family. It will destroy your church. Took it very seriously. Saul's jealousy, rooted in his assumptions that he knew what he wanted, that he wanted the throne. We could look just at the beginning of his life. He didn't want the throne that badly. He was hiding among the suitcases when they appointed him king. He made the assumption that he knew what was best, that he would be both king and the victorious warrior. And he knew that he deserved being king, and all of these assumptions were wrong. I am deserving, I am wise, I am informed, I am godly, and obviously the people around me are not, so God give me that which I desire. That's jealousy, it will destroy you. That's jealousy, it will destroy you, and there's not a vanilla okay version of it. There's not a version of it that's not deadly. It's deadly in all doses and in all forms. And it's a challenge to the throne. Saul's jealousy was because David was challenging his throne, and our jealousy at the root of it is we want to challenge God's throne. God, are you doing an okay job? Good job creating the world and all that. But now that things are going, I think I've got some ideas. Let's just take a moment right now where we are before we move on to David's victory. If you're alive today and have a heartbeat, which I think is nearly half of us, you are experiencing some level of envy and jealousy in your life. I have no idea what it was, but if you're alive and you have a heartbeat, it's happening. I don't get an amen on that one. It's happening. You're being a little bit stubborn if you say, well, (laughs) luckily I don't struggle with jealousy. Okay, you uh, struggle with arrogance. Um, (laughs) Just helping you out there. You're welcome. And I'm I'm serious. It, it, It destroys you. If you're envious of your friends, it will destroy your friendship. If you're envious of your spouse, it will destroy your marriage. If you're envious uh, in, in your church, it will destroy the church. James was not writing with high, uh, uh, extreme language to make a point. He was writing with extreme language because what was happening was deadly. So maybe we'll do something a little bit different here. Let's just take a moment and pray. Just bow our heads. And I don't know what your form of jealousy is, but why don't you just offer it to God and say, God, take it. Let's do that now. Just bow our heads, close our eyes, and I'll continue in a minute. God, we thank you that you hear our prayers, especially, Lord, our repentance, and that right now your face is beaming to have your children come to you with hands open wide saying, God, this is wrong, I need you to fix it. We thank you, God, that we experience the pleasure of your presence even in bringing you our shameful things. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rewind back to 18, verse 1. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. David had killed Goliath, and he met up with Saul, the son of Jonathan. They became good friends, bonded in spirit. They loved one another with a deep affection. And in that moment, Jonathan gave to King David, it says, a number of things. He took off his robe, and he gave it to David. He gave to David his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. David was given by the prince of Israel, King uh, Prince Jonathan, son of the king. David was given royal robes. Jonathan had no idea. He had no way of knowing that David had been anointed king. And David puts on uh, the royal robes that he uh, deserves because God had called him into royalty. David wore the garment of royalty because his identity was royalty. I want to point out to you how 1 Samuel 19 is going to end. Look at the end of 1 Samuel 19. Saul had been pursuing David, and the Holy Spirit had made Saul uh, prophesy, which was sort of a, um, a spiritual experience where he could not move. He was overcome by the Spirit. And it says this in verse 24. He stripped off his clothes, and he prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way, naked as the day he was born, all night. And so the author of Samuel is comparing what's happening with the soon-to-come king wearing now the royal garb and the, and the outgoing king who by the Spirit has been what? Stripped of his royal garb. David now is living in his identity as the king appointed, if not already in reality. And Saul, unbeknownst to him, is living in the reality he has been stripped of the royalty. So understand this. David goes out on his military campaigns and has victory after victory after victory. He does not have the victory in order to obtain the throne. That's backwards. He has the throne and is therefore empowered by God, so therefore what? He has victory. He may not have the palace, he may not have the throne room itself, but the victory comes out of the fact that, God, that David was being faithful to his identity as one anointed by God to be the king. He did not obtain victory in order to become king. He already was king. And so therefore he just acted in a way consistent with the identity he already had, that Jonathan recognized, if not really. He went out on the military campaigns against the Philistines and all of the other enemies, just as he had gone out on the military campaign against Goliath, which was this. Why would you oppose God and his people? And so as the king of his people, he went out against the enemies of the people of Israel and said, you can't oppose God. Quit being so silly. You can't oppose God. And so as king of the people, he just simply went in the strength of the Lord, not to obtain the kingdom, but because he had already attained unto it by being anointed by God. 1 Samuel 18, 12 says it this way, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had left Saul. Was the Lord with David because David was an awesome warrior? No. David was an awesome warrior because the Lord was with him. And David hadn't done anything to deserve being an awesome warrior with the presence of the Lord. What was David doing before this? Watching sheep. 
He's sitting there. He's got his few sheep, as his brother describes it, and a, and a courier, a messenger shows up. David's sitting there eating his bologna sandwich, as all shepherds eat. And all of a sudden, a guy shows up. Hey, Samuel's uh, at the house. He wants to make you king over Israel. I'm sorry? And that was it. He, di- he didn't go and uh, have his battle attested. He didn't go to military school. He just uh, simply, by the work of God in his life, went suddenly from the sheepfold to shepherding the people of Israel. The Lord was th- with David because the Lord had chosen David just because that's what God wanted to do. God had anointed him, and so he had victory. Verse 16 of 1 Samuel 18 we read the disposition of the people of Israel toward David. All Israel and all Judah loved David. Why did all Israel and all Judah love David? Because he led them in their campaigns. Already we're seeing problems in the people of Israel under the rule of David. If we look back in Deuteronomy and understand the role of the king among the people of Israel, the role of the king was not to impress the people with his military might. The role of the people was to understand that the king was going to lead them in obedience to the law of God. That's why when the king became king, he had to sit down and write out his own copy of the law with his own hand so that he might, as king, lead the people to follow God in obedience to the law. Did the people love David because he led them closer to the Lord? Of course not. Frankly, I don't think they could carry a hill of beans about that. They were happy the Philistines were dead. Then it's not surprising when Jesus showed up with no military and no might, what was the reaction? Who's this loon? They loved David because he led them in their campaigns and he overcame their perceived enemies, if not their actual enemies. David then experienced victory over victory over victory, and then what did he experience as a result of his victories in his relationship with Saul? Injustice after injustice after injustice. Over and over and over again, Saul will wrong him and wrong him and wrong him again. He tried to pin him to a wall twice. Uh, Jonathan goes to his dad and says, Dad, listen, uh, David is sort of giving us tons of awesome victories. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. And Saul, in a moment of clarity, said, you're right, I won't kill him. Uh, He then sends David out on a military campaign. David has a tremendous victory, and when he returns from the campaign, he's playing his harp for Saul, and Saul tries to kill him again. David then has to make his escape. We learn this in verse 19. The men of Saul were gathered around his home, spying on him. He had to sneak out of his window. His wife had to lower him out of his window on a rope, and then she had to build a dummy in his bed so that when the men of Saul came to kill him, they said, where's David? Oh, he's in bed sick. Oh, well, we can't kill him if he's sick, apparently. So they went back to Saul and said, well, he's in bed sick. We should wait till he's better until before we kill him. And Saul said, bring him here in his bed. That's how Saul, I want this guy dead yesterday. Bring his bed here and I'll kill him. And when they get there, they realize that David's long gone. Here's a question I have when you uh, think through not your own jealousy, but the jealousy of others when it's inflicted upon you. You've had this happen? The jealousy and greed and sin of others is inflicted upon you? 
if you've got relationships with more than one person, you've had this happen. Maybe you've asked this question of God. God, I've done the right things here, and yet the wicked still seem to prosper. Doesn't that drive you nuts? You do all the right things, and the guy who's, who's wronging you, who's unfair and unjust and wicked, and he just seems to be doing great. There are entire psalms written about that. God, why do you not inflict punishment? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? We question God's justice. Now, God, he's sinning, he's doing wrong. She's sinning, she's doing wrong. It's costing me. It's making me look bad. It's costing me money. It's costing me professionally. Or it's costing me in my family. Now my kids won't talk to me or my wife won't talk to me or whatever it might be. God, are you just? Are you fair? Are you going to deal with this or not? Certainly you've prayed that prayer before, haven't you? God, are you going to deal with this or not? God, do you even want to make it right? God, are you just? God, do you need help with it? Maybe I could pitch in. Just punch him in the face. Nothing big, God. Do we believe God is just? If we believe God is just, we can wait on him to make things right. Will we make things right or will we let God do it? And this is where David was. He said, I'm going to live. I've got the clothes of the king. I've got the authority of the king. I'm going to let God take care of his business with Saul. I'm going to trust that God is actually just and he will actually receive from Saul which is owed. But just let me remind you, over in Psalm 59 where we were earlier, David did not approach this in a sanitized, easygoing way. Okay, God, I'll just let you handle it. No worries. Listen to Psalm 59, verse 5. O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish the nations. He's being nice here. Rouse yourself to kill Saul, God. What does rouse mean? Dude, wake up. Are you not paying attention to what's happening right now? No, seriously, God. When we read that rouse, think to uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember those wicked uh, prophets of Baal who spent hours and hours whipping themselves and cutting themselves to wake up some uh, uh, demon? Remember that? Well, this is David with God. God, are you going to wake up? God, justice needs to be done here. Rouse yourself to punish the wicked. Let me describe for you, God, maybe because since you seem to be on vacation, what it's like. They come every night snarling like dogs. He's penning this psalm while looking out his window, and on the, on the ground down below his window are all the spies of Saul. God, just memo, God, they're all down there. If you want their coordinates for the missile, I'll tell you where they are. Would you wake up, God? Hit the nuke button. He responds to God the way every single person would when things aren't right. And then in humility and even a sense of confession, he says at the end of the psalm, O my strength, I sing praise to you. You are my fortress. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. I don't know what's going on. It seems like you're off the job, but I trust you, God. You will be my strength. You will bring justice when justice is owed. God, you will defend your king. 
I don't need to get revenge because you will take care of it, God. I trust you are just. God, I trust I can serve you and rest in the fact that you will do your work, that you will get your justice. David has victory because he lived in his identity. He was king and he let God take care of his business, getting revenge on Saul. And Saul would eventually face his judgment, but it wouldn't be from David. One thing I just want to point out by way of closing, the Bible presents us this relationship, this dynamic between the jealous Saul and the victorious David and their relationship with one another and their relationship with God uh, and it does so uh, in, a, in a non-simplistic way, meaning the Bible helps us understand uh, jealousy in our life and victory and trusting in the justice of God in our life in the midst of th- the real complexities of life. 2 Samuel 11, do you remember what happens in 2 Samuel 11? David has decided not to go to war, and he sees Bathsheba bathing on her roof. And he desires to have her, and so he takes her. And they have an adulterous relationship because they didn't get married that night. Bathsheba is married to Uriah. Remember this guy. Uriah is called in from the field. David gets him good and drunk and then sends him home to sleep with his wife because Bathsheba has become pregnant, and he, does, he, can figure the, he can do the math. He sleeps with her, and he'll think it's his. We have the same color hair. Let's hope that works out. Uriah, though, in his drunkenness, shows more character than, God, than David and, and won't go home to his wife because that was the standing policy in David's army is when you were on the job, you and your wife didn't have relations together. So finally, David does something crazy. What does he do? He writes his note to his general, Joab, send Uriah out in front so that he'll die. Where have we heard that before? The same way that phrase is put together is the description of Saul and what he was doing to King David. He sent David out in front. So Saul spent all this time, David, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to, he has victory over victory. So, oh, yeah, pure as the wind-driven snow, David, right? Just put him on a throne. What does he do? First chance he gets, he does the same thing as King Saul. Put him out in front. I know this technique. I learned it from the king before me. And it worked. And Uriah's dead. Bathsheba comes as David's wife, and they, uh, that, that child dies, but eventually their marriage brings forth Solomon. So what we need to understand this when we're looking at the life of David or anyone in the Scripture. David was a man after God's own heart, but remember, he was just a man. Let me point out something. It's, it's crazy. And you say, prove it. Okay, here we go. Uh, Psalm 59, 5. O Lord Almighty, rouse yourself, punish the nations, speaking specifically Saul, who had tried to kill him by sending him on missions, show no mercy to the traitors. So what does David say? God, don't, don't you show any mercy to Saul. He's a, he's a bozo. In the Hebrew, that's what that is. David does the exact same thing as King Saul, and what does he write in Psalm 51? Verse 1, what's he say? Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. 
God, don't show any mercy to that jerk Saul who tried to kill me unfairly. God, show me your mercy. See, see David's like you and me. He, he's, he's, he's just a man. He's working through the issues of jealousy and sin and a fallen nature and the complexities of real life. What do we do? I'm jealous, and not only that, I've been wronged by jealous people. And if left to my own devices, I'm going to be no better than David, who on the one hand showed great uh, uh, restraint, but on the other hand did not want to extend to Saul the same mercy that he was hoping to receive from God. What do we do? Let me just read two verses, and then we'll close with these. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What do we do? I'm jealous. What do we do? I need the righteousness of God. I need somebody who can give me their righteousness because I'm just full of jealousy and greed and envy. God, I need something that doesn't come from me. I need your righteousness. So God made him who knew no jealousy uh, to, to bear the weight of our envy and the envy of others. He who knew no sin became our sin so that way we could receive his righteousness. And what does that look like? In Galatians three twenty six and 27, the Apostle Paul says this, you, all are, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have what? Clothed yourselves with Christ. So we come to Christ and we're bonded with him in affection like David and Jonathan were bonded with one another in affection of brotherly love. And Jesus takes his robe of righteousness and wraps it around us and says, I've got you covered. But God, I'm full of jealousy and envy and greed and justice, and I, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want to wait for your justice. I want to take me around. It's okay. I got you covered. You're righteous. Wear my clothes. Be identified not with your, your jealousy and your fallenness, but rather be identified with my righteousness. Be clothed in Christ. David wore his royal robes before he was on the throne, and we wear the righteous robes of Christ prior to getting to heaven. And we're identified not by the, the, the desires of envy and greed in our heart, but we're identified by the righteousness of Christ which we wear. Think of what Jesus did when he was here. Did he pursue power? Did Jesus ever pursue power while he was here? At any given day, he could have walked into Herod's uh, palace, killed Herod on the spot, sat on his throne, and never died. He could have ruled forever in Herod's place. He could have been, he could, Satan offered him the rulership of the entire planet, which, which Satan had the authority to offer him. He said, no thanks, I'm here for a different purpose. He pursued no power. He pursued no revenge on the cross for the one who had drove the, the nails into his hands and his feet. He said, uh, God forgive them, they, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. The guy with the hammer can get just as saves as anyone else because Jesus said, no, God, I'm not seeking revenge here. He did not seek privilege, although he could have attained to it. He didn't pursue his own personal pleasure. 
He didn't pursue wealth. He didn't pursue prestige, which his teaching would have allowed him to do. He intentionally and on purpose through the course of his life allowed you and allowed me to wrong him with our jealousy and our greed and our envy. He took it all on himself and he said, I'll take all of that to the cross. I'll die for it. So guess what? Now no revenge is needed. Now no revenge is needed. I've paid their price. No revenge is needed. And now at the beginning of the story, we see David putting on robes, and we see Saul stripped. But in the life of Christ, we see something different. We see us putting on robes, and Christ stripped. He says, covered. Put on my robe. I'll be naked. So you can be with my Father. I will pay for all the revenge. I will pay for all of the justice. So it's all covered. He didn't clutch onto his robes, but he was stripped on purpose that we might be clothed with his righteousness. And he wants us to live our lives in that robe, the robe that is covered. In the midst of the complexities of life, we'll wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you for your mercy and grace, and by afternoon we're praying for the death of our coworker, or at least their injury, or maybe at least that they'll get fired. And he says, no, 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 don't, don't hold on to that. I paid for all that. You're going to let that go. I've given you my robe of righteousness, and now you can live in the identity of the fact I've given you everything. You're heir to the kingdom. The fix here is not merely to stop being jealous. Good luck with that. The fix here is to understand we're a different person now. We have a different identity. We're no longer that one who has to clutch to everything because he let go of everything. We have all he, had, he could give us. We can rest in him the fact that he was not jealous or envious for his whole life on our behalf. He was stripped so we could be clothed. 